The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. This morning's scripture reading is in Matthew 22, starting in verse 1. Matthew 22. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one near you in the pew. And if you don't have your own Bible at home, please feel free to take one of these pew Bibles with you as a gift from Park Church. If you're using the pew Bible, today's scripture can be found on page 776. Matthew 22. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Amanda. Good morning. Happy Sunday. Um, First of all, I'm grateful that Gary uh, put up the map of Uganda. Uh, I'm from California. We don't know geography, like, at all. Um, (laughs) Like, it's real. It's a real thing. Um, So I'm grateful. Thanks, Gary. Um, (laughs) As a lay elder here at Park Church, it's such a joy to um, just be a part of what God is doing here. I've had the sense over the last couple months or so that the Lord is, is up to something new and fresh at Park Church. Some of y'all might feel the, the stirrings in your heart for a deeper intimacy with God recently, and he's working in your life. Some of you guys might not even know how you ended up here this morning, Um, And I believe God is working in your life. He is always working. In fact, Jesus says, my father is always working. And so we trust that as a thousand different stories of God working in individual lives come together to worship this morning, that the culmination and celebration of worship together is a thousand stories converging to where we erupt in glad joy and thanksgiving. And so I'm going to ask if we could spend a moment to pray that we would be attentive to how God is working in our community and also individually in our lives. Would you pray with me? Spirit, we yield our hearts to you. God, you're a God who is working, who is active, 
whose heart beats for Denver and for Park Church and for every individual in this room. And so, Lord, those who are guests who have come with friends or family, uh, those who have come in here uh, maybe for the first time, Lord, that we would all sense and recognize just the power of your spirit, the open invitation that you bring uh, to us that we get invited into a kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I love a good party. Uh, It doesn't take... I mean, like, no, really. Like, it does not take long of knowing me uh, to know that I I really love parties, especially if there's, like, a good playlist and costumes and a theme, good food, good drinks. I mean, I am all in. Uh, I I actually think it's fate. My parents were huge party people. We, uh, growing up, were, were the family that always had, like, like 20 extra people at every holiday. And so by nature, you have to do paper plates and buffet line. Um, But not only that, my parents' side hustle was actually dressing up like Disney characters and going to kids' parties. Raise your hand if you ever had one of those parties where you had a character show up. Oh, that's just a California thing as well? Okay, (laughs) cool. For millennials, uh, where I'm from, it was like the, the pinnacle of every year to have your favorite character show up, whether it was Aladdin and Jasmine or the Red Power Ranger who was going to paint your face. I mean, gosh, my mom even, no joke, dyed her wedding dress yellow so that she could be Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Um, so uh, celebration is in my blood, I believe, um, and I really enjoy a good party. Um, those sa- us same millennials who were really like after that like cool character at our party, I think we wanted to just one-up our parents. And so a quick uh, Pinterest search will show you all of the extra millennial parent parties that are being thrown these days. Uh, Things like six-year-old spa day parties, uh, complete with pedicures and facials. Okay. Um, There's also a good one going around right now called Kidchella. I don't know if you've seen this. It's real. Lots of fringe and boho. Um, And then there's also a really cool one that's, that started trending in 2022, which is Flora's Lava. Now that sounds great, but we've got some parents going way overboard with Lava Punch and uh, some epic uh, games. Lots of injuries I hear in that. Um, some of you guys feel called out right now. I'm sorry, I'm not. It's, it's not, uh, except maybe Kidchella. I would definitely call that out. Um, <laughs> You know what I believe, though? I believe that, like, woven into the very fabric of humanity, and also what we're going to see woven into salvation history, is festival and party and celebration and joy and feasting. So we're going to look at some of that today, because I believe that when I celebrate well, I'm tasting the essence of Jesus' kingdom. We're going to get invited into that today, and we're going to do that in a few ways. First, we're going to look at Jesus' parable about this wedding feast. We're going to focus on the feast. We're going to see where in salvation history this idea of feasting and celebration really bubbles to the surface. Then I want to zero in on what I believe the main character of the story is, and that's the father king. And then we're going to look at his relentless pursuit and finish up with uh, an awkward moment that happens at the wedding. So let's dive into scripture. Here we go. Chapter 22 of Matthew, verse 1. It says, And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, as he often did, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Kingdom of heaven is like a party. Now, I'm not sure if this resonates with you, 
as much as it resonates with me. Do you think about your faith as a party and a celebration? I mean it. Like, when you think about, like, I follow Jesus, the king of the universe, what comes to mind when you think of that? Is it a party and a celebration filled with joy and good food? Or is it something a little bit more stodgy, like pews and hymns? What is it that comes to your mind when you think about your faith and about the kingdom? Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a party. And I want to take a look, just a cursory overview as we examine that first point of a feast. I want to look from Genesis to Revelation and just take about five minutes to highlight the points where we see God is interacting with mankind and at that intersection is always a party and a feast and delicious food. So in Genesis 1, it starts with food. God provides for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But we know that a forbidden feast actually is how sin enters the world. God answers the call of that problem by providing, being a provider, offering animal sacrifice that will then be used for atonement. We see that this atonement of animal sacrifices carries out into Israel as he instructs them in worship rhythms of feasts and festivals that we see all throughout the Old Testament. God then chooses to enter into covenant relationship with Israel, and he does so in so many instances over the Old Testament through feasts, through food and animal sacrifices and bread and wine. We see that as he rescues Israel out of the hands of Egypt, he does so by marking with the Passover feast. Detailed instructions on what to eat and how to eat it and to be seated while eating and ready to go and how to cook the lamb. And we read the Old Testament sometimes and say, why are there so many details and instructions about this? But our God is interested in us awakening our senses and coming to life to understand who he is. As the story continues, he's calling Israel out into the wilderness, promising them a promised land, and it's described as a land flowing with milk and honey, which sounds cool, and you're like, well, is that literal? Um, Last service, I made mention, which was not in my notes, so going off script here. Uh, Anyone grow up watching Winnie the Pooh? Man, I'm just like killing at Disney here. Um, Winnie the Pooh had this, like, one episode where they were somehow chanting, like, a land of milk and honey, a land of milk and honey. Who, you remember that. You're clapping. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) She remembers. No, everyone looked at me. Weird last service. Um, We're not talking about, like, the Pooh Bear imagery of milk and honey, but, uh, but really what that means is, like, a land that is just filled with abundant blessing, a, a fertile place, a place where agriculturally there is just abundance. And God is promising that the land he's calling his people out from Egypt for is a place filled with abundance and food, wonderful feasting. We see that... Uh, God continues to ask Israel and commands them to mark their relationship with him and his character by the festivals carried out throughout the entire Old Testament. Festivals like the Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths where they remember God's incredible blessing in the wilderness. Where he provided bread from heaven every single day for them so that they no longer had to trust themselves or be bonded to the yoke of slavery. God is constantly awakening their imagination with food 
all the time, over and over. The, the psalmist even invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good. He's real good. And as the prophets of the Old Testament foresee a time when God will come and bring restoration on this earth in the fullness of his kingdom, they tell of this messianic reality as mountaintops dripping with wine and choice meats and foods to eat. Feasting, festivals, tables, cups. The imagery is just all throughout scripture. And when Jesus comes on the scene as the fulfillment of that messianic reality that the prophets foresaw and that God set up in salvation history from the beginning, he starts by announcing the coming kingdom and its reality here on earth at a wedding feast. And he turns water to wine, declaring, I am the fulfillment of all of the feasts and festivals that have been spoken of and dreamt of and anticipated. And he says, I am the Messiah. He continues this same imagery of wine and feasts and bread and festivals as he dines with sinners, so much so that the religious elite of the day mistake him for a drunkard and one who eats with sinners as his primary reputation. Jesus wasn't ever drunk or getting crazy, but because of his association with them around the table and the ministry that he welcomed them into in relationship with God, that's what he was known for. He then takes bread and wine the night before he was betrayed and says, this is my body. This is my blood. This is the feast. And you know what really got people ticked off was when Jesus said, come eat my body, drink my blood. Even non-Christian historians from the first couple centuries pick up on the reality that the early church primarily focused around this table where people came and shared a meal together who socioeconomically should never have been together, that this now covenant by the blood of Jesus and the broken body shed on the cross is now unifying people who would never, want, never be in the same room together, let alone call each other brother and sisters. It's a feast that changed the world. And we see in the culmination of the kingdom of God in Revelation, the wedding feast of the Lamb where every tribe, tongue, and nation is around the throne and around that table, celebrating and declaring the glory of Jesus, the salvation that is by no other name, and crying out hallelujah at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Amen? All throughout salvation, salvation history, God has hung the realities and the truths of the gospel and of life with him in the kingdom on feasts and festivals and cups and tables. And so as Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a wedding feast. Our imagination goes wild. And the call for you is to celebrate like crazy. Can I get an amen? Okay, good. All right, so we've covered that. My question for you is what does it look like for you in your everyday, ordinary life, in your homes, in your dorms, in your neighborhoods, to embrace the kingdom of God and live into the reality of a feast and a party? Because I think we got some work to do in that area, if I'm honest. Here are some ideas. Uh, number one, throw a party. I mean it. Throw a really good party. Invite some friends from your gospel community. 
invite neighbors who don't know Jesus? What if people got a taste of the kingdom because of the incredible party you throw or the happy hour you have at your neighborhood? I'm serious. Like, this is Jesus' kingdom stuff. And we need to leverage that stuff in order to celebrate and welcome people to the table. So throw a party. Number two, uh, leverage the church calendar that has been uh, practiced for decades, for millennia, as anchor points for you to start to celebrate things that have deep and rich meaning. What I mean by that is, as we do things like Lent and Good Friday and Advent, use those as opportunities for gospel moments. One of the things that my family and I have really leaned into in the last few years um, around the time of Advent is using each of the five Sundays of, or four Sundays of Advent leading up to Christmas as times to just cook an incredible meal. We'll try to pair wine with like what we're eating. We'll bring out some nice dishes. And there's something about marking those individual Sundays during Advent in a significantly different way than all other meals of our week. It just, it grows that longing and anticipation during the Advent season. And we've started inviting people into that to share that joy. So leverage the church calendar as an opportunity to anchor in some depth that you could easily share the gospel around. Number three, my third idea for you, is lean into Sabbath. We talk a lot about Sabbath here at Park Church, um, and it might sound like super old school, or you're like, wait, I didn't know I was at a Jewish synagogue. No, uh, we love Jesus, and Jesus loves Sabbath, and so here we are practicing that. Actually, we need that. The Bible says that, that, that Sabbath was made for man because we are intended to rest. And so, okay, I will. Um, <laughs> So one of the things that, that we do that just transitions our family into a time of deep rest is that Friday night's meal is filled with candles and playlists and dishes and incredible food, and it just does something to usher my heart into a, a time of rest for the next 24 hours. So lean into Sabbath. It's a great opportunity to do that, to celebrate. And then finally, I would say uh, reclaim the table as sacred space. I don't think it's a mistake that Jesus' ministry was primarily around a table. I think it does something when you look someone in the eye and share a meal, when your ordinary days can be marked as a time to come together as a family or as roommates or a neighborhood and say, we prioritize this as a space that's sacred, where we share a meal, we pray, we see each other face to face. So reclaim that space as sacred. That's the feast that we see Jesus ushers us into this parable by talking about a wedding feast. But like I said, point number two, I think the main character here is the father king. Read along with me, chapter 22, verse 1. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a feast for his son. He sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. He sent Uh, He sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fattened calves. They've been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Here we find a king who is absolutely enthralled and delighted by his son. Did you catch that? His delight is in his son and he His joy is culminating in this party that he's throwing for his son, so much so that he wants everyone to come. We see uh, 
This same attitude and love that, that, that the Trinity has for one another, expressed particularly by the Father to the Son in the baptism of Jesus, where he says, this is my Son, whom I'm well pleased. John Piper describes this relationship like this. He said, God the Father loves the Son, not with any self-denying, sacrificial mercy, but with the love of delight and pleasure. He's well pleased with the sun. His soul delights in the sun. When he looks at the sun, he enjoys and admires. He cherishes and prizes. He relishes what he sees. This king, who is worth obedience and honor and glory, pours out joy over God the Son into this mutual love and adoration that some come to describe as the dance of the Trinity. And it's beautiful. And this ignites our worship as well. Uh, For those of you who are parents, you could relate to just looking at your kids with delight and joy most days, right? Uh, That was a joke. Uh, my, my son, Josiah, my oldest, he's eight, year old, eight years old. He's recently just picked up skateboarding and is like at that age where, hey, I'm going to try something and be killer at it. And uh, so he's in the skate park like skating bowls and stuff and it's like his third time skating and I'm, I'm enthralled with him. I'm delighted by him, mostly because he can do stuff that I never will be able to do, but for the fact that he's my son. He's my son. I love him. My younger son, Levi, is four, uh, recently was in soccer. I don't know if you can call four-year-old soccer games, soccer or games, but we found that the only way he was actually engaged was um, if he knew there was a snack at the end and if we told him that he could uh, be a dinosaur on the field. (laughs) It was going really well and just a couple growls here and there, but uh, yesterday was the last game. Um, and we had some fatalities because the roars turned into scratches and tackles and uh, we had to pull him off the field. I still delight in him. <laughs> Not because of his dino or soccer skills, but because he's my son. And I love him. When we see the love that the father has for the son and the joy that he has in his heart to welcome with a wide invitation all that are available to come to the feast of his son and celebrate, we need to pay attention and align our hearts with the Father's. When we can examine and lean into the Father's heart for the nations, for the world, and for one another, we begin to get on board with what the king is after. Amen? So... um, That's the father king, and now I want to look at his relentless pursuit because we see that the feast is ready, and the people who have already been invited are actually not showing up. Like, that's a pretty crummy RSVP. All the invitations went out. No one shows up. I would have canceled the party. I don't know about you. Um, Instead, we see this king so motivated by the love that he has for his son that he says, all of the joy and fulfillment and excitement and all what it means to be human can be found in celebrating this feast right here, right now. More people need to know. And so Jesus likens the, the religious leaders and particularly comments on Israel as um, those who have been invited and don't show up. Follow along with me in verse 5. After the king says, come to the wedding feast, 
They paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent troops and destroyed those murderers and burned the city. You see, in in the salvation history narrative, God's covenant with Israel was something he was passionate about, and he keeps his promises too. And as they went away and, and, and worshiped other gods and disobeyed the Lord's commands and didn't uphold their end of the covenant relationship, God always does. So they were off chasing, what does it say here? One off to his farm, another paying no attention. How much like us at times? When like the parable of the four soils, it says the seed that falls among the path, like the, the thorns choke out the gospel taking root because of the, carries of the cares of the world, the worries of life, all of the activities we can participate in, the career climbing, the family focusing, the every option in the world can easily become an idol that chokes out our love and worship for the true king. And so we have to ask ourselves, how have we not responded to the RSVP? How have we ignored the invite? Or for my Gen Zers, how have we ghosted God? Did you get that? That's good. Okay. (laughs) Got ghosted. I learned about that recently. You see, God is not satisfied with just calling off the party. In his grace, he sends out more servants to tell them, and and Jesus is alluding to the prophets of the Old Testament here. And what do they do with those servants? It says they killed them. And then the king takes an interesting turn because when we would have probably canceled a party with no RSVPs and no shows, the king says, go therefore, in verse 9, to the main roads, invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so that the wedding hall was filled with guests. This is our God. He's a God who's not going to stop at, at human rebellion and cancel all of the, uh, the plans that he had for salvation history, for life with God and people together forever. He says, no, you who were invited who have denied the invitation, I'm going after the rest because I'm a faithful God to my covenant promise. His portion of the covenant promise said, people, I choose you. I love you. Be in relationship with me. I will be mine. You will be, I will be your God and you will be my people for the sake of being a blessing to the nations. And so he doesn't stop. He says, fling wide the gates. Let them all in. Some of us need our hearts opened to the lost. Some of us need to get out of our holy huddle and make room for more because we have a king. We have a God who made room for you and for me and for the least of these. So we align ourselves with the heart of God and say, how are we becoming a warm welcome and invitation to the kingdom? 
How are we, like the servants, going out into the main roads and grabbing everyone we can? This is a challenge in today's world because Barna Research recently came out with this, uh, this staggering report in 2022 that says 56% of American Christians feel like their faith is effectively private and exclusively private. I'm not going to share my faith. Additionally, evangelism has been now seen in uh, research as the lowest engaged spiritual practice of evangelical Christians in America. That the amount of Christians sharing their faith or feeling bold enough to or even wanting to is diminishing. We need this parable. We need to be reminded that the invitation is open and it's wide. It's understandable that um, in a day and age like today that's uncomfortable, it's uncomfortable in this post-Christian context to be bold to share our faith. Um, The moral kind of orientation of our culture is no longer with a Judeo-Christian worldview. And so evangelism, it makes sense to me that it's more uncomfortable and declining faster than ever in the history of at least our country. There's an awkward and uncomfortable moment that happens at the end of this parable, one that we don't love. And I'll be honest, if it was up to me, I'd, I'd write the parable a little bit different. I'd end the story differently. I'd actually end it at the wedding feast, the hall is filled. Like, that would be awesome. We could walk out of here and just be like, yes, Jesus, let's just share Jesus, and this is awesome, which we should. But what does Jesus say after that? Verse 11, it says, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to them, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the utter darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. That's an awkward moment. I mean, it's, it's an awkward moment now, even as the people of God gathered and reading this text. That the same God who says, the invitation is wide and bring everyone in, would also say, narrow is the road that leads to life, and few will find it. We're, we're treading upon what people call the exclusivity of Christ. Jesus talks about this in John 14 when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And we can try to, uh, like, reinterpret that to mean something different or, like, hey, it's a little bit more palatable for today's world. And we sometimes want to do that because in this moment in time, I don't think that everyone loves Christians as much as they, like, used to a couple decades ago of, like, Is it just me, or are you feeling that? Okay? 
Alice Anasio says this, while people who hold a different worldview criticize Christians for their claim concerning the exclusive salvation through Jesus Christ, the truth of the matter is, is that every religion makes an exclusive claim. Exclusivism is not only true of Christianity, it's also true of Islam and Judaism and Buddhism and Hinduism and every other religion, including secularism. This is why there are no Buddhist Christians or Islamic Hindus. What makes Christianity different from the other religions, though, is that while all these other worldviews hold to a works-based salvation, in Christianity you are saved by grace. You are saved by placing your faith in something God has done, not something you can do. Can I get an amen? Guys, the friend, as the king calls him, who shows up, at the wedding feast without the proper wedding garments is likened to someone who is excited about the invitation but is not, not willing to embrace the cost of discipleship. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up a torture symbol. You've got to leave your father and mother. You have to be willing to be hated But it's not welcoming you into a life of desolation and sadness. No, it's like forsake that so that you can party. And I'll be honest, that's still hard. It's still hard to read the final words. Many are called, but few are chosen. It's hard to read that the man... In the wrong clothes, outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. So the question of discipleship today is, are we yielding ourselves to the commands of the king? Or are we trying to carve out our own way? Our own sanitized version of the gospel that doesn't include the hard things, that doesn't include the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that really wants to have a universalist mindset to welcome people in without the obedience and the joy necessary in following Jesus. This is an awkward moment. But I think that as we look over what it means to be a a disciple, Dietrich Dietrich Bonhoeffer's words are helpful. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. So what's the Lord asking you of today? He wants you to join him on his mission, to seek and save the lost, to be a bold generation at this place, this time in history. That we would be a people to step up and boldly welcome those into the greatest party that could ever be had for all eternity. It's also a call to enjoy God. Like, can we say that? I mean, he's throwing a party. He wants you there. He wants more people there. And I'm ready. I mean, I don't know about you. I love a party. We also got to realize that this is real life. Like, this is real stakes. 
And so I'm praying that the Spirit is doing something in each one of you today in some unique way. I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's you needed to hear the heart of the Father for you, that the same delight he has in Jesus he has over you today. For some of you, you, you've maybe grown up with just an, an easy, kind, sanitized Christianity that's not asking you to lay down your life for the sake of immense joy that's available. The Lord is working in your life today. And so I'm gonna pray and just ask that he would continue doing that, but that we together as, as, as Park Church would be a people who are committed to leaning into the feast, that we're gonna show up, that we will stand in white robes because of the justification that we have in Jesus Christ, that the gospel message is true for us, that we could do nothing on our own, and it's all grace. It's all grace, and it's all on the king's terms. And so let me read this final vision that we can leave with today. Revelation 19, verse 6, it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has readied herself. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Father, we yield our hearts to you. Give us hearts that trust and have faith. Like, give us the faith that we need so that we can take you at your word and trust you and let you make us uncomfortable so that we can realign ourselves with a kingdom vision that open wide the gates of invitation to all but still requires that we do it your way by the blood of Jesus, by grace. So Lord, I just ask that. Give us your heart so that we can welcome. Give us your heart so that we can follow and obey. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.